Hello, my name is Blaze Bailey. Hey, this is Chuck Billy from Testament right here on Mars Attack. Hey, what's up? This is Joey Z from Life of Agony. Hey, this is Tim Ripper Owens. This is Bobby Bliss from Overkill. You stay tuned. Hey, this is Dan Lorenzo from Hades, nonfiction, the curse, and my horrible solo music. You listen to my boy Victor on Mars Attacks. Hey, this is Ron Bumble for Fall of Guns N' Roses, and you're listening to Mars Attacks. How you doing? This is Frankie Benali from Quiet Riot. Yeah, ladies and gentlemen, this is Dave Windor from Monster Magnet, and you are listening to Mars Attacks. Hello, everybody. This is Michael Giske talking, and you're listening to Mars Attacks. Hey, this is Richard Patrick from Filter, and you're listening to Mars Attacks. Hey everybody, what's happening? This is John Bush, and you're cranking it up on Mars Attack. Hello, this is Greg Prado. I am the author of several books, my two latest books being MTV Ruled the World, The Early Years of Music Video, and also The Eric Carr Story. And you are currently listening to Mars Attacks. Episode 28 of the Mars Attacks podcast. I am your host, Victor. And uh, what we have for you in today's episode is an interview with Greg Prado, author of the Eric Carr story, among other books. Um, I just finished reading this book and absolutely loved it. I completely recommend it to anyone that is remotely a KISS fan or a fan of Eric Carr's. So much insight, so many things that come up in this book that I hadn't known about before, but obviously I'm not part of the KISS inner circle or was ever a member of the band or a manager or so on and so forth. You have all that in this book. You have Bruce Kulick, you have Bob Kulick, uh, Gary Corbett, who was KISS's keyboard player on a bunch of different tours and a great, great friend of Eric Carr's. Um, so there's plenty of insight that is brought up during this book 
that uh, that I wasn't privy to previously, and I'm grateful that Greg put such a great book together. Um, I will also admit that right after the interview, I did go out and purchase two more of his books, only because the conversation just sold me on uh, some of the other books that he has, and no doubt we'll have him back on the show in the future to talk about the various other books. Uh, unfortunately, unfortunately for me anyway, um, I had to um, heavily edit this interview because the recording software that I'm using, I don't want to name it as of yet because if if they come through and and are able to rectify the situation with this software, um, I'd like to continue using it because there's also a... Um, a feature where you can record video as well. I think it may be interesting to do some sort of video podcast in the future. But um, outside of that, uh, you know, what ends up happening is all the recordings, unfortunately, are done in one channel. Uh, And what that means is that everything is recorded in one single place. Usually, we like to record everything in two separate channels. So... Uh, it's easy for me to take out all the ahas, uh the uhs, the pauses, and anything else that may occur during the interview. Uh, it isn't possible with this. It is possible, but it's a lot harder to do. And uh, what's been taking place is that the software itself just takes my voice. The person that I'm doing the interview with can hear me fine, but the recording, it just loops back exactly what I'm saying. So it's a big pain in the ass. Um, on average, it's taking me a few hours to clean these up, take out those repeating parts, re-record parts that uh, more or less were along the lines of what I mentioned during the initial conversation. But uh, I think everything sounds all right, and I think you guys will enjoy this. And um, yeah, what we're going to do is get into some more Eric Carr, Eric Kiss. And this is a song that Eric wrote, or co-wrote anyway. This is All Hell's Breaking Loose. And after this, we'll jump right into the interview with Greg Prado.
I found it very interesting because um, uh, I've tried reading other books, other music-related books, and, uh, you know, the biographies I have no issues with, but other times when you have uh, people recounting stories, it just doesn't come across as well, in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, this book did quite the opposite because, obviously, um, you coordinated the content, but it's other people talking about Eric Carr, so I think that made it a much easier read, at least for me. Cool. Well, thank you. Yeah, I mean, you know what it is, too? It seems like um, a lot of the uh, Kiss books that have been written since about 1996, a lot of them pretty much focus on the 70s and skip over the 80s primarily and then pick up again in 1996 when the original uh, Kiss lineup got back together. So, yeah, this book, besides being about Eric Carr, also doubles as a book about 1980s Kiss. Right. And I th I think it's also cool as well that some of the other books that that you read, a lot of them get into uh, maybe bashing Gene and Paul, and not to say that there isn't uh, that element to um, to an extent in the within the book, but there are things backing it up, like people saying, you know, I witnessed this or this transpired, so this is my opinion. Right. Um, it isn't as if you have, you know, it isn't as if you wrote it and said, okay, well, 
this is, you know, what took place or this is what I think took place. No, you have guys like Bruce Kulick, Gary Corbett, things like that, that actually were there and are actually giving their opinion. Right, exactly. I mean, basically how I approached it was I was just a um, author who was just speaking to people. and I just let them tell uh, their side of the story. And yeah, and also the way that I have it set up is in the oral uh, history format, which means it's just quotes from people from all Mm -hmm. the phone interviews that I did. Okay. How long did it take you to put all the interviews together? Well, I started both the Eric Carr story book and also the book MTV Ruled the World, both in January of 2010. And I had both of them done and ready for purchase in December of 2010. So I was able to complete two books last year. Oh, okay. So um, some of the people that you interviewed with or for the Eric Carr book, you were also interviewing for the book as the other book as well? Yeah, but um, for, for, for the most part, they're pretty much separate. I mean, the only people that I could think of that were for both books was uh, Bruce Kulick, obviously. And Marky Ramon has uh, quotes in both books. Um, I can't really think of who else would have been in I'm trying to think who else I interviewed for both books. I think that's pretty much it. I don't think I spoke to. Uh, oh, also Carmine Apiece. I interviewed okay. for uh, both books. Um yeah, I think that's about it, though. I, yeah, it, there wasn't too much of, uh, you know, people I spoke to for um, both books. It was pretty much two separate things. Was it difficult for you to track anyone down and get them involved in the book? Well, I mean, uh, you know, I, I would have, of course, liked to have spoken to Gene and also Paul for the book. And I had people and I also wanted to speak to Ace and I had people, uh, mutual friends or mutual um, uh, contacts reach out to all three. And uh, for Gene and Paul, I never heard back. And for Ace, I heard back from his uh, publicity people saying that he couldn't do it. And I suspect it's because he has his own book coming out. So he probably didn't want to talk about stuff that's going to be in his own book. So, I mean, I would have obviously liked to have spoken to Gene and Paul. But, um, you know, the more I think about it, you know, with with, with books like uh, Behind the Mask and also Kistory, Gene and Paul have already gone on record with their side of the story with what happened with Eric. So, I mean, now I think it's time to hear the other side of the story with, you know, people that I spoke to that were, you know, friends of him, also people that were in the same band, such as Bruce, you know, his uh, girlfriend, Carrie Stevens, his sister, Loretta, um, you know, members of bands such as, Car- uh, yeah, such as Carmine Apiece, such as Charlie Bignante from Anthrax. So you get, um, I think finally fa- Kiss fans will be able to get the uh, other side of the story. Cause of course there's always two sides to, um, every story so you know you can't just always hear one side you have to hear the other side and i think that's what fans now finally have with uh, the eric carr story was there anyone's testimony that surprised you quite a few people such as uh, gary corbett who played keyboards with kiss on a few of their tours i think he played on the crazy nights and hot in the shade tour and part of the revenge tour but he was really good friends with eric i think he was the only a music-related person that visited him when uh, Eric was in the hospital the last year of his life in 1991. And uh, I got some really cool information out of Bob Ezrin, who produced uh, The Elder and also Destroyer. He, uh, uh, for the first time to my knowledge, um, is the first time anyone related to The Elder Project went on record as to what exactly the storyline was about, because uh, I remember a year or two ago in Classic Rock Magazine, there was a thing with Kiss where uh, readers could send in questions, and uh, Paul Stanley was asked what exactly I think the song Just a Boy was about, and he said he had absolutely no clue. So, so 
So finally, Bob uh, was uh, willing to go on record with that. And also, I got some cool information from the producer, Michael James Jackson, uh, behind the Creatures of the Night sessions. Uh, he right. uh, told he, he, he said for the first time, for the best of my knowledge, that he thinks Ace Frehley did play on some of Creatures of the Night, which up till now, Gene and Paul said he didn't play on um, any of the albums. So that was pretty cool to hear. And um, besides that, also Carrie Stevens, who was uh, Eric's girlfriend, she had a lot of cool information. Bruce also had some very cool information, too. Um, he didn't, you know, hold back, you know, and like those are really the best types of interviews and people just tell the truth and speak their mind. Right. Also, uh, Bob uh, Kulik was a really good interview. Um, uh, Bruce Kulik's wife at the time, they've since been divorced, but her name... Um, I'll give you her name right now. It escapes me right now. Catherine uh, Henderson or something like that? Or? Yeah. Um, know, for some reason. Oh, uh, Christina Christina Harrison. Christina Harrison. That, yeah. Okay. She also had some cool information. Yes, I mean, it seems like I was able to, you know, because the thing is, too, is I'm just such a big fan of music, and I love reading books that have a lot of information that I don't know prior to, to reading the book. So with pretty much all the books I've done, I've done about six books so far. I always try to um, – get a good amount of stuff that really isn't out there yet. And, you know, since there's been so many Kiss books, I also tried to get some good stuff that hasn't been out there. And I think uh, this is probably the first Kiss book in quite some time to have a good amount of stuff that hasn't really been circulating uh, previously. Yeah, I agree. There, There's a lot of information that, um, you know, I myself as a Kiss fan wasn't privy to. And, and I've interviewed Bruce on a few occasions, and I thought his – um, his content was was very interesting just because, you know, initially his opinion of Eric was one thing, and you could tell as time went by and they got closer, his opinion was different. There are also times in the book where he doesn't chime in, and obviously this has to do with uh, his existing friendship with Gene and Paul, and, you know, the p politically correct thing for him to do is is to not comment because he obviously doesn't want to strain that relationship. Um, there are others, though, like Gary Corbett, who make some incendiary comments and, you know, holds absolutely nothing back, as, as you mentioned. And, you know, it's absolutely great to hear his take on things because obviously they're not sugar-coated. And, you know, and I also uh, found some of the stuff that Eddie Trunk said to be interesting as well. Uh, Eddie's someone that I've been trying to get on the show for quite some time now, but in any event, um, he had an issue with Paul a few years back, and you can tell that the relationship is still somewhat strained there. So, uh, yeah, it was interesting to read what he had to say as well. Yeah, and, you know, someone else I realized who was a really good interview was Bill um, Coin, who was Kiss's uh -huh. first manager, and I was lucky to... Uh, speak with him just maybe about a month or two before he passed away, you know, which is, you know, pretty sad because he was such a great person and such a you know, huge part of Kiss's success. And he couldn't have been a, a nicer guy. And he was very, very honest and very uh, forthcoming with a lot of info about Eric that I didn't know. And he was, you know, also very honest about the first, I mean, he was very honest about the last year also of Eric's life because he kept in contact with Eric throughout the years. Yeah, so he also had some pretty cool things to say that I never really read before either. Yeah, great point. Uh, I think pretty much everyone that contributed to the book uh, added little bits of information and helped build the entire history to, to make the book a very easy read. The way it's presented, uh, the, the book, at least for me, I read it 
in no time, and I do recommend it for anyone that's a fan of Eric's, a fan of Kiss, or a fan of music in general. Thank you, I appreciate that. Yeah, because like I was saying before, I've done previous books, and pretty much all of them that I've done have been set up in the same format called the um, oral history format, Mm -hmm. which means that it's all quotes. Like, you'll have a subject such as, like, 1982, and there will be all quotes about, you know, what was going on with Kiss in 1982 with, you know, the Creatures of the Night recording and also doing the Killers compilation and yeah and i've done that with pretty much all my books i've done a book about shannon hoon from the band blind melon called a devil on one shoulder i did a book about tommy bolin who is the guitarist in deep purple and the james gang called uh touched by magic and i did a book uh two years ago called grunge is dead which was about the whole entire grunge movement and i interviewed guys from soundgarden nirvana and pearl jam and the reason why i like this setup the most is because you're getting the story straight from the horse's mouth you know you're, you're not getting mm-hmm the person who's writing the book giving you their take on what happened you're actually it's kind of like almost like a documentary but in a book form you could say right, right did you at any point in time try to reach out to Vinnie vincent yes i did actually and um yeah he recently uh launched his own guitar line right yeah i know that was it was debuted at the uh, nam show i think a few weeks ago and he didn't even show up at that and i remember um there was a little YouTube clip about a few months ago saying that he was going to be putting out these guitars. So I got in contact with the person who posted that clip, just right. explaining I was doing a book about Eric Carr. And yeah, the person got back to me saying that Vinny doesn't do, uh, you know, any kind of press anymore or anything like that. And I was hoping he would maybe turn up at the uh, NAM show, but I, I don't think he did. I just think it was his guitars there. So yeah, I did uh, try to get him, but I did speak to a few of his former bandmates. Um, Spoke to uh, Bobby Rock, who was the uh, drummer for the Vinnie Vincent Invasion. Mm-hmm, he had some mm-hmm. pretty cool stories about recording those Vinnie Vincent albums. Because, you know, again, although Eric wasn't in, uh, in the um, Vinnie Vincent Invasion, you know, I figured since I had the opportunity to you know, speak to Bobby Rock, I might as well you know, ask him those questions about, you know, that those, those, those two uh, Vinnie Vincent Invasion albums, just because I would think fans would be interested in checking that out. And I also right. interviewed... Um, Mark Slaughter, who also uh, sang in Vinnie Vincent. I interviewed Mark Slaughter primarily uh, about uh, Slaughter, because Slaughter opened up for Kiss on the Hot in the Shade U.S. tour. Yeah, I was lucky enough to speak to Bobby Rock and Robert Fleischman, actually, who had both been part of uh, Vinnie Vincent Invasion. And uh, not only to get some insight on Vinnie, but to see if there were any Kiss-related stories that uh, they could pass along as well. Um, so it was interesting to see Bobby and Mark and Blas Elias included in the book as well and, you know, completely understand that they did that Hot in the Shade tour with them and that they would have a specific amount of insight uh, regarding what took place on that tour. Yeah, you know, because something else is just as a, you know, uh, big uh, fan of Kiss for, for so long is uh, that lineup with uh, Vinny and Eric, I think uh, it, it, it's too bad that that lineup didn't didn't stick together because I think that out of all the lineups that have been around after the original lineup, that was probably the best one, I think, as far as quality of songs and, you know, just, you know, I think that that Creatures album is fantastic. And also Lick It Up, I think, was the best non-makeup uh, Kiss album. So it's yeah, just kind of a shame that uh, it just didn't work out because I think they probably could have, you know, because it seems like with the 80s as Kiss goes on, they kind of lose what they were about early on and they start following kind of like trends. Like they try to become really commercial after a while. Whereas it seems like the stuff with Vinny was more kind of close to what they were doing, you know, closer to like their heavy metal type stuff. And, 
and, and and also by the same token, Vinny, I think, you know, wound up going way off the, uh, you know, path <laughs> what he was doing with also Vinny Vincent with his soloing was just so it was just like all like shredding stuff, which I just can't stand. And it wasn't really about the songwriting anymore. You know, so, yeah, it's just a, a shame that 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 uh, lineup that was on Creatures and also Look It Up couldn't stay together longer, because I think that uh, just the quality of the you know songwriting, and everything, I think that all four of them really were were a you know, pretty good fit. Yeah, I would have to agree. Creatures of the Night actually happens to be my favorite album by the band. I would say for me, I yeah, I, I would put it in my top five. Like I'm not sure if it's my all-time favorite because I really like Alive and Destroyer and Rock and Roll Over. But yeah, no, definitely I'd put it in my uh, top five without question. Yeah, for me, Creatures, Destroyer, and Rock and Roll Over are my top three. And I have to agree with you, without a doubt, I think Lick It Up is the best non-makeup album that they put out. Um, within that realm of the non-makeup albums, um, Crazy Nights was the one album that I just couldn't get into and I've never bought to this date. Um, it just, as you're alluding to, you know, they it, it, it just followed trends and it just didn't sound like them and that whole pop and, you know, over-the-top keyboard sound that they had just uh, didn't do it for me. And it's interesting that, um, you know, in the book, uh, Jamie St. James from... Uh, Black and Blue mentions that when uh, Gene was uh, producing their album, that anytime they brought you know the word organ up or keyboards, he would say ice skating. <laughs> you know, so it's interesting that uh, you know th- that he would allow Paul and Ron Neville to go so crazy with you know the um, the keyboards that are present on that album itself. Um, I also have to agree with uh, Bob Graw, who's in the book, as listed as the number one Kiss fan, in that when Hot in the Shade came out, you know, was that sort of 180 coming back in the right direction, you know, to what the band had originally done. And, you know, I listened to Hide Your Heart, and I said, finally, okay. Songs, you know, I like the song. It isn't. It isn't I Love It Loud, but, you know, it was a step in the right direction. It's interesting that Revenge is that album that took the band all the way back to, you know, similar to Creatures, similar to stuff in the 70s. And it's interesting that Vinny was a part of that album and he helped write three of the songs, uh, like Unholy, uh, Heart of Chrome. And I believe the other one is I Just Wanna, if I'm not mistaken. You know, honestly, uh, by, by by that point, I kind of wasn't really following Kiss at that point. At that point, I was more into, like, the, you know, grunge bands. I was more into Soundgarden and Pearl Jam and Nirvana. So, like, that was kind of an era where I kind of I, I kind of lost contact with Kiss. But then I wound up getting back into Kiss once the original lineup got, lineup got uh, back together in about 96. But, um, yeah, but uh, from what I hear, people say that, you know, that album... Revenge was similar in, in parts, also creatures that it was Kiss finally getting back to their heavy metal roots and everything like that. But you know, for me, just as a fan, you know, I followed them throughout the '80s, and you know, just like you were saying with you know albums like Crazy Nights, like you know, it, it just got to the point that after a while, I kind of came to my senses and realized like this Kiss is just following trends and everything. So to me, it seemed kind of fake and forced that then suddenly come like 1991, 92, then suddenly now they're going to be like this really heavy band again. It just kind of hit me as kind of being fake a little bit after what they were doing for the past, you know, five or six years. 
Right. You know? If Eric doesn't die, does the reunion take place? Uh, probably, because it seemed like um, even if uh, Eric stayed in the band, and, and, and also in my book, there's a whole thing where people talk about that Eric may have been fired the last year of his life in Kiss, or he, they, they don't know if he was in the band or out of the band or what his uh, relationship was with the band. So I'm not sure if he would have been in the band. You know, Maybe if he was to recover, he would have maybe just turned up in some other band or done like a super group thing. Right. But, um, you know, it's it's hard to say. I mean, because it seems like the whole reason why the um, original lineup gets back together is because they knew they could make so much money. And also Kiss's popularity was floundering a bit. Like I know the last few tours they did there, you know, the people that would go there, there'd be like half empty arenas and things like that. So I think that was really, you know, I don't think it was because Gene and Paul, you know, really missed Ace and Peter. I think it was just that they realized the fans would be interested <laughs> in that. And suddenly they'd be able to sell out arenas and everything again. So, but um, you know that said though, now that you know Peter's gone, you know who knows? Maybe they would have asked Eric to come back if he was still alive. You know, because it would, it would probably have been cool for Eric to put back on the Fox makeup again. Right. Yeah. So, I guess it's something that we'll just sadly never know. Yep, that is unfortunately true. Let's jump over to your other book, When MTV Ruled the World. Tell us a little bit about who was involved in this book and what you were trying to accomplish uh, when putting this book together. Yeah, I'll tell you. Oh, you know what? And also I wanted to say just quickly for people that want to check out uh, these books, uh, they can do so by going to the website lulu.com, which is L-U-L-U.com, and just do a search for the uh, Eric Carr story, or you can do a search for my name, which is Greg Prado, P-R-A-T-O, or you can do a search for MTV Ruled the World, and you'll be able to find these books. And, uh, yeah, so to um, answer your question from the uh, heavy metal people I spoke to for this book about um, MTV was uh, Rob Halford from Judas Priest, uh, Getty Lee from Rush, Bruce Kulick from Kiss, Joe Elliott and Phil Collin from Def Leppard, Lita Ford, Warren Demartini from Rat, Carmine Apice, um, Rudy Sarzo from Quiet Riot, uh, Rick Emmett from Triumph, and I also interviewed Pete Angelus, who directed all those great Van Halen and also David Lee Roth videos from the 80s. And, uh, right. there, and there's also several chapters that specifically are about heavy metal. There's a chapter about the stories behind the songs about uh, pretty popular heavy metal videos, like we have Carmine and Peace talking about filming the Bark at the Moon video, for Ozzy, right. which, mm -hmm. is, which is pretty cool, and Bruce Kulick talking about the filming of Tears Are Falling and Getty Lee talking about Rush videos. And also there's a, a chapter that fully, that excuse me, solely focuses on Van Halen's videos and the making of them, because like I said, I interviewed Pete uh, Angelus, who directed them. And you get the story behind the videos for like uh, Hot for Teacher and all those things. There's also a chapter about Def Leppard's videos. And also KISS fans will be interested because besides Bruce Kulick being interviewed, there's a whole chapter called KISS on Masks on MTV which people talk about watching uh, that uh, segment where it was in Kiss the first time appeared without makeup. I'm assuming the book also has chapters on music that uh, doesn't relate to metal as well. Yeah, it, the book covers pretty much all the styles of music that were being played on the channel at the time. Um, includes uh, new wave music, hip-hop music, pop music, and also rock music. And what it is, it starts from the beginning. It talks about how the channel was created here in the U.S., also, when it debuted in 1981 and all the changes it went through and how it became such a huge monster, pretty much, and how, you know, it basically became the hub of where people went to discover music and discover fashion. 
now it became just so very powerful. It's pretty much now what the you know net is now with you know how people discover music and bands. It was really that that was the first twenty four hour music news and also video place that people could go. And at the time when it came on, it was absolutely mind boggling. You know, I mean, everyone that I know my age watched it, and that's where you went to you know see the new Kiss video or the new Ozzy video. You know, and you you know discovered bands like Def Leppard and all these other bands. And, um, you know, but then also that said, there was also some things about the channel that people didn't really care for, such as some of their practices, some of their rules, you know. So we have people talking about the good sides and also bad sides. And I interviewed a wide variety of people for this book. I interviewed uh, Stuart Copeland from the police, uh, members of Devo, Hall & Oates, a few of the VJs that were there originally. Also people that clearly didn't like the channel, like Jello Biafra from the band uh, Dead Kennedys. He goes on record with what he didn't like about the channel. Also, Chuck D. from the band Public Enemy. So I have a pretty wide variety of people. And I got to say, out of all the books about MTV I've read, I think this is the best one. Why do you think MTV has switched over to a more of a reality TV-based format? Do you think the videos just ran their course? Uh, was there any discussion regarding this in the book specifically? Or do you have any theories as to why they transitioned away from the video format. Well, the thing that was so great about the channel when it first came on was it was similar kind of to what Sirius Radio is now, that um, there was a little bit of pretty much everything. You know, you would just put it on and you could just soak it all in. There was no specialty shows. Like, for instance, in 1982, if you turned on the channel, you could just watch an hour and you'd see, you know, a, a new wave video or, you know, or talk about certain bands. You'd see like an Aussie video. You'd see a Duran Duran video. You'd see a Joan Jett video. Uh, you'd see a Men at Work video, police video. Uh, you'd see a ACDC video, you know, and then you'd go into, say, like, uh, Pat Benatar. And, you know, you'd get a huge hodgepodge of stuff. It wasn't just, um, you know, you, you, you wouldn't turn it on at, you know, 3 o'clock saying, all right, this is going to be the half hour. They're going to play nothing but metal videos. In an hour, they're going to play nothing but rap videos. It was really just about everything. So then about a year or two into it, when MTV suddenly starts getting really popular and making good money with advertising, then suddenly I think, you know, pretty much the dollar becomes the most important, the most important thing. And then you start getting specialty shows, you know, such as a, a hour worth of heavy metal videos, an hour worth of, you know, uh, you know, uh, hip hop videos. So then it starts getting formatted. And then it just, and then the uh, original VJs start to leave, and then it just starts getting stupid. Like you know, the <laughs> VJs that start coming in aren't, you know, they don't really have as, you know, great like personalities and things. And yeah, and then and then eventually they just start don't they 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 aren't playing music anymore. Now they're playing these horrible horrible reality shows, and you know they're covering movies and thing you know things that have nothing to do absolutely at all with you know rock music and then you basically have what it is today which i can't even stomach watching that channel at all because all it is just one big bad reality show you know so i mean i i haven't watched um mtv in god knows how long maybe the mid 90s or the late 90s that was really the last time i could really stomach watching it you know it's strange because over here in spain we do receive or at least with what i have set up here at home uh, several music channels, and if I'm not mistaken, with MTV, there's four different MTV channels, and they still show videos for the most part. They're starting to seep in with Jersey Shore and Pregnant at 16 and and things like that, but for the most part, you have videos uh, for 
most of the day. The channels that do show those reality series have videos for probably, uh, I don't know, 12 to 16 hours out of the day. But, um, yeah, it's, it's just a shame that they've transitioned away from what really got them popular initially. You know, it, to me, it, it seems like these channels always start to lose it. You can always pinpoint it when they're going to start to lose it. They start showing movies that have nothing to do whatsoever with music. You'll, I remember they did that with VH1, and now, sadly, they're doing that also with, um, what do you call it, uh, VH1 classic, which I was a huge, huge fan of. And now they're just showing movies that have nothing to do with music. Like they'll show the movie, they'll show the movie called Roadhouse, which right. I mean has a little bit of music, but it's really just acting. You know, I, I, who who wants to tune into VH1 classic to see some like you know bad movie? You, you're you're tuning into <laughs> that to see either a concert or you know videos that you haven't seen in very long. You know, I mean, you, you aren't tuning into VH1 classic to see some you know horrible, horrible, shitty movie, pretty much. You know. Yeah, 10 minutes of Jeff Healy and about it. Right, yeah. Yes, I mean, <laughs> I think you can pinpoint when these channels are starting to lose it when they start to show movies, which, of course, again, is all about just, you know, cash. It's all about, well, they can make a lot more money or it's or it's cheaper to show a movie and they make more money with advertising or, you know, who knows what the setup is. But obviously it's all about just, you know, making money. You know, that's, that's, that, that's what happens with these channels when they start to lose it. Yeah, you know, and it... Unfortunately, it's happened with a lot of other channels as well. Uh, I remember living out in western New Jersey and having a channel called The Box where it was 24 hours of nothing but uh, video requests. And it was cool because you got turned on to a lot of different bands and it was very freeform uh, type of a channel. And uh, that was eventually absorbed by MTV2. And aside from that, there was Fuse, and you know, Fuse was a great channel initially, and remember going back to the States to visit family, and you know, turning Fuse on, and seeing all these movies that uh, all of a sudden they were showing, and you know, it just sort of uh, didn't make sense to me, because why, you know, why would somebody be tuning into these channels to see a movie that nowadays they can you know, easily rent off of Blockbuster or off of, uh, say, iTunes or some other, you know, um, cable provider's uh, video box or however you want to call it. You know, it just doesn't doesn't make sense to me. Well, see, that is the, be that is the beauty of YouTube. That now you can just go on that yeah. site and you can watch whatever videos you want to see. You don't have to deal with these, these horrible movies or bad um, shows. You know, if you just want to see good music videos from back in the 80s or now or rare ones or, you know, discover stuff, you could just go on there and do a search and find some really cool stuff. You know, and that's interesting because for a point in time there in the 90s, for example, a lot of bands just stopped making videos because MTV or VH1 was not going to play the videos that they were putting together. So with YouTube, you know, I've seen over the course of the last few years where bands have actually decided to start making videos again. And um, they load the video up to YouTube and then to their website. And a lot of fans are actually going and checking out what these bands are putting together. Right. Well, yeah, something, something I talk about in my book called um, MTV Ruled the World is when the channel first went on the air in 1981, a lot of the videos were basically just bands on like a stage just, you know, singing along to their, you know, hit or whatever. Then. Right. Then as you go on, bands start putting a lot more money into these videos, such as the Michael Jackson Thriller video. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly you have these bands that are sinking a lot, a lot of money into these videos. And they're not even videos anymore. They're like these little like small movies almost where the 
musicians have to act and they're like trying to recreate uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark almost, <laughs> you know, and they're making these like ridiculously stupid videos. So, you know, you kind of, um, you know, and then there was that whole backlash against that, I guess, with the whole, you know, grunge movement, which was why I was such a huge fan of those bands is that was the reaction against all those horrible overblown, you know, videos that, you know, those like horrible um, Guns N' Roses videos from 1992, where it's, uh, Axl Rose on like, you know, shit on, on this huge uh, boat and all these idiotic small movie. Like, who, you know, who the hell wants to see him act, you know? Right, right, yeah, right. right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, like that kind of, I guess, you know, it just kind of goes in ways. I mean, it's probably still the same way. I couldn't tell you, but probably with like, you know, Jay-Z videos, it's probably the same thing. I'm sure his videos are these like little small movies. But, you know, for me, always my my favorite type of uh, videos were the videos that were kind of funny, like those Van Halen videos from the early right. 80s, like, you know, Hyper Teacher, where they're not taking themselves too seriously, or videos like Pearl Jam Alive, where it's just a band live playing playing their song. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. that, that that's definitely what I like more than these big, overblown, silly videos. But, um, yeah, one thing, though, about my book, MTV Ruled the World, something that I, I have a chapter in it called When Music Video Attacks. And what, what that chapter is all about is I ask all the people I spoke to to talk about some of the worst videos that they saw in the 80s. Right. You have a whole chapter of uh, people analyzing uh, the finer aspects of these videos that were so horrible, so, so bad that they've become these classics now. I'm talking about, did you ever see the video for Billy Squire, Rock Me Tonight? Yes, the one that yeah. sunk his career. <laughs> yes, exactly. Like we have, we have people talking about that. And let me tell you something. That video is so horrific that it is actually probably my favorite video ever. It's, no kidding. <laughs> it is. I mean, it is. There's things in life that could be so bad that it goes beyond bad and becomes just absolutely like mesmerizing, and I and I would say that video is just a work of art. <laughs> what would so, you? you know, so yeah. So what would? So basically, that you know chapter we have people talking about that. We also have people talking about Pat Pat Benatar's "Love Is a Battlefield" that has her dancing in the middle of the video. We also have uh, the horrible video for uh, Dancing in the Streets by Mick Jagger and also David Bowie, which which, I mean, I'm I'm a huge Stones fan. I'm a huge Bowie fan. But that that video and song is just absolutely doo doo. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So we definitely get into some of the finer uh, bad videos of the of the uh, of the of the whole entire era during that chapter. So in your opinion, what would you consider to be your five favorite videos? Well, I mean, Nirvana smells like teen spirit just because that really signals, you know, I mean, thank God Kurt Cobain came around and flushed bands like Motley Crue and Rat and Warrant and Poison directly down the toilet, you know? I mean, that's <laughs> all I have to say about that. Because I, I got to tell you, I love Kiss, but hair metal I really just hated. You know, I really just did not like hair metal, hair metal at all. I just didn't like that. It was just like a bunch of bands copy copycatting each other. I didn't like their kind of like views upon how women are treated in videos it got to the point that like bands like Warrant and all these other crap bands were just regurgitating Motley Crue albums. You know, it just was the same predictable crap over and over and over again. So for me, Nirvana smells like Teen Spirit just because that signals a whole entire change right there. You know, right. right. Okay. So that one, you know, I mean, like the, these videos I'm gonna name, they aren't in any specific order. I'm just naming the five videos that come off the top of my head. Sure. Also, um, I have to go with Billy Squire Rock Me Tonight because that that video, again, it's just so horrible that it has to be studied and has to be to celebrated. You know, <laughs> I mean, that I mean, and, and, and people who are listening to this, if you're not familiar with that video, you really owe it to yourself to go to YouTube and really check it out because 
you'll be you'll be absolutely hypnotized by it. It's just a wonderful, wonderful uh, work of art. So right there is two. Um, have to go with say "Kiss." I love it loud. I always thought that was a pretty cool uh, clip. I'm surprised. You know, what's funny is that for me is probably Kiss's best video. And uh, MTV, I remember at the time only play. I only remember seeing it at the time one time. See, like that's the thing which we talk about in my book, the Eric Carr story is. Uh, Kiss puts out Creatures of the Night, and that album just bombed. I mean, it was a great, great album, but it just didn't do anything on the charts. The tour was a bomb, and it's just sad because that was definitely, like we were discussing earlier, one of their best uh, albums, and, and I think that video was great. So, yeah, I would say that that video, so that's uh, three videos. Um, let me think. I, I love all of the videos from Devo. I think that they had probably some of the best videos from the 80s, or really just videos ever. Because, again, they were able to do stuff. They always had their, like, a sense of humor in their videos. So the best, my favorite Devo video is a video called Freedom of Choice. That's a very cool video. I really, really like that video a lot. They have some cool scenes and weird makeup and just, and it's also a really great song. So that's four. So I would say the fifth video, um, I'll go with Van Halen Hot for Teacher because, uh, again, Van Halen's one of my favorite bands of all time. I absolutely love Van Halen. I, well, I I, Van, I only like Van Halen with with um, David Lee Roth. I don't like any other era of the band with all these different singers. And for me, Hot for Teacher is just a hilarious video. They did such a great job with the uh, characters, with the filming, a great song. You know, I just remember seeing that video at the time, and it was just it was just it st it stuck out so much from all the other videos that were being played at the time. And, and that's the thing too, that I think set Van Halen apart from all the heavy metal bands at the time, all the heavy metal bands really took themselves seriously. Like if you see the Motley Crue video for like uh, looks that kill, they right, come right. off looking like, you know, goons cause they're acting serious in this like silly, stupid video. Meanwhile, you know, <laughs> or even like kiss comes off kind of silly. If you see like, lick it up, you know, mm -hmm. again, that kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier that, Suddenly these videos become these like mini movies and the musicians have to suddenly act, you know, and that just was stupid. Whereas I think um, that uh, Hot for Teacher video, Van Halen did the right thing and they hired all these funny little kids and all these different characters. And, you know, I think they really did the whole thing right. So, yeah, I would say those five videos are my uh, top five video picks. And those are all great all onto themselves, you know, and uh, it was funny. Um... A few weeks back, had a conversation with some friends here in Spain and uh, mentioned to them what an impact the video for Hot for Teacher had on someone like myself who was in middle school or junior high school, depending on where you are in the States, um, what an impact that video had on all of us. You know, instantly there was a Waldo in every school across America. And, you know, seeing the teacher jump around in a bikini and everything else, obviously, you know, as a uh, uh, a young adolescent there, you know, uh, a young teenager seeing that video, um, you, you automatically wanted to instantly go to California, you know, and um, and and have a teacher just like the one that was in the video. And, you know, and, and also the thing, too, with that video, I just want to say, like, I, you know, talked about, oh, I, I don't know if I talked about this, but in my book, um, MTV Rule the World, there's a chapter that talks about how women were portrayed in in, uh, in these um, videos at the time. And it seemed like a lot of these, like, heavy metal bands, they were basically just portrayed as groupies or strippers. But the thing with Van Halen, like, even in that video, 
to me, it didn't give off the vibe that they were like, you know, exploiting women or anything. It seemed like that that kind of fit the whole storyline kind of in the whole the whole song is about, you know, you're a kid in school and you find your teacher attractive. So I mean, yeah. at least that fits the song. It's not just some like gratuitous, stupid, you know, like they're not forcing strippers in a video for absolutely no reason, you know. Right. So, I mean, so like, so that's what I think is different. Yeah, and and again, also Van Halen was very imaginative with their videos, and also that you know the characters in their videos and things like that. And also something interesting about that video that Pete Angelus, the um, director, told me is they came up with an idea. They said, you know, we've never seen a um, scene in any music video where it looks like someone peed their pants. And if you see, and if you watch closely the end of the video, you know how they show like what the people went on to do later in life? Yeah. If you see David Lee Roth's spot, he's playing a very excitable uh, talk show host. Right, right. And if you look carefully, he has a huge wet spot around his crotch because they wanted to seem like he was so excited that he wet himself. And they uh, basically did that to see if they can get that past the, you know, sensors. And he said that no one has ever even spotted that. No kidding. It's true. So if, so <laughs> if you go back and watch that Hyper Teacher video, check out that scene because I actually checked it. I, I thought he was maybe just pulling my leg. But after he told me that, I went back and I actually watched that. And it's true. I, and, and, you know, I was going to say, I'll give you a sixth video, too, because I was a huge fan of this one, too. Soundgarden, Jesus Christ pose. That's also a really, really great, cool video. Great video, great song. And what's very cool about it is, like, getting back to what I'm saying, like, I always preferred bands, you, you know, kind of either playing along to the song or doing a live version. But that video is very cool because it's just them walking through the desert and not even playing instruments. The way it's filmed and all the images you see, it's just really a great video. It, and, and, again, a video that totally stood apart from all the other um, videos at the time. Getting back to those Van Halen videos, uh, Peter Angelus was also responsible for the David Lee Roth videos as well. Yep, he did all those great early David Lee Roth videos like uh, California Girls, Just a Gigolo, Yankee Rose, Going Crazy. Also the video for um, Going Crazy is one of my favorite yeah, videos. Yeah. yeah, because, you know, because again, they came up with these really cool characters you know so that and, and and again they didn't take themselves too seriously there was a lot of joking and a lot of you know humor in those videos that's what i think made those david lee roth and van halen videos stick out from you know all the very serious videos at the time you had from you know michael jackson and don henley and you know all these guys that are taking themselves like way way too seriously yeah none of them are trying to portray themselves as one of the fabulous picasso brothers and, you know, the, the director that I'm talking about, his name is Pete um, Angelus. He actually was one of the fabulous Picasso brothers. He's the uh, one with the big bouffant hairdo. Right. Yeah, he that's uh, that's uh, that's uh, him, actually, in the video. He's in uh, Just a Gigolo he's in, and he's also in Yankee Rose, the, the very beginning of the video, and he's also in uh, Just – I mean, he's in also Going Crazy. He, he, he actually went on to become the manager of the uh, Black Crows. No kidding. Yep, yep. He's been their manager since the very beginning. Also, it's kind of interesting, too, is uh, him and Dave Lee Roth were supposed to make a movie at the time, and it was going to be called, I believe, Going Crazy. And um, they actually had this. And he talks about this in the book, MTV Ruled the World, that uh, they had the whole script written. They were supposed to start, start shooting. And then they signed on with, I think, some company that was new to, to put out the movie, and they went belly up about a week before. They were going to start shooting, and the movie sadly never got made, which I would have loved to have seen because those videos are so great with all the interesting characters. And he was telling me yeah. that, I, that I think that movie would have been full of all those kind of funny characters and things. So it's definitely a shame that that movie never got made. I think that probably would have been a very funny movie. I agree. Would have been an excellent movie. 
So aside from the two books that we've just discussed, what else do you have going on? Do you have any other books currently in the works? Yes. Well, I have a few other books. I'm either working on it coming out. I'm working currently with Carmine Apice, the great drummer, on his book about his whole entire life story. We're uh, just finishing up the first draft of that. And uh, this is a great one because he does not hold back anything. He was very honest with uh, his whole entire career. And you get a lot of cool things because he played with Rod Stewart. He played with Ozzy Osbourne. He played in Vanilla Fudge who gave Led Zeppelin their first U.S. tour back in 69. So he was really good friends with also John Bonham, so you get really cool stories about that. He's also been really good friends with Kiss throughout the years. So there's a whole chapter of his uh, experiences hanging out with Paul Stanley, and he was in a few bands that opened up for Kiss, so he talks about his experiences with that. So, uh, yeah, and he also talks about the infamous Mud Shark story, which uh, has been talked about in... Uh, <laughs> Such books as Hammer of the Gods, but this is the first time that someone that was actually there talks about it because Hammer of the Gods is written by a uh, guy. He was just a uh, reporter who wasn't there on the scene. He just, you know, I guess gave his side of the story, what he thought happened. But this is the first time that someone's willing to go on a record, and it is it is very shocking. It is very disgusting. Yeah, so I basically have that book. And also during the summer, I'm going to take a brief break from music writing, and I'm going to do my first non-music book. I'm Gonna write. I actually have written a, a sports book. I'm a huge fan of the football team, the New York Jets. I'm doing a book called uh, Sack Exchange, the definitive oral history of the 1980s New York Jets, which is coming out on ECW Press, and that's coming out in July, I believe. And that is, uh, like the title says, just uh, talks about the whole 80s uh, Jets teams because they never won the Super Bowl or even went to the Super Bowl, but they had some really great characters and really great teams that almost made it there, but always fell short. And it was always for some strange reason, kind of. So we talk about that. And also just fans of 80s football, I think, will really enjoy it because um, you just kind of get the story of what 80s football was really all about. So those are the ones I have coming up. And I have a few in the planning stages, which I can't quite confirm just yet. But those are the two that are uh, just about ready to go. Okay, so I'm assuming names like Gastado, Klecko, and Altoon, for example, will be coming up in the SAC Exchange book. Yep, I interviewed actually all those three that you just mentioned. I also interviewed uh, Wesley Walker, uh, Marty Lyons, uh, Walt uh, Michaels, who was their coach. I also interviewed members of teams that played against them. So you get a huge, you know, you don't just have to be a fan of the Jets. If you want to get a true sense of what 1980s U.S. football was all about, I would say definitely check out the uh, book called Sack Exchange, which was the, the, the title is from what the New York Jets defense was called at the yeah. time because they were uh, one of the leading uh, defenses with guys like Gastineau and Klecko. So, yeah, it's a uh, good book, especially for people that may not be that familiar. You know, if you're a, a, a fan of the Jets, you will really enjoy it. But if you're maybe not that familiar with football, if you want to get a taste of what U.S. football was all about, specifically the 80s, which a lot of people consider was the high point of uh, football here in the U.S., I think that book really uh, does a good job. Oof, hearing the name Wesley Walker just makes me cringe. Uh, can completely picture in my mind a playoff game. I think it was against the Browns. It was the first time they classified for the uh, playoffs in I don't know how many years. And Wesley Walker fumbling in the red zone somewhere like at the 10-yard line um, when the Jets were sure to score. So, yeah, the th Thanks for bringing up uh, some so, some scars there f for being a lifelong Jets fan. 
um, that I had long since forgotten. I had to say, I actually wiped that out of my memory, but it's just one of, it's one of, one of, very, of countless very painful dress memories, including this past weekend, they uh, just had a latest painful dress memory, because uh, they, painful dress memory, because they almost, this current dress team almost made it to the Super Bowl, yeah, but they yeah. fell a little short, so again, that's just another, uh, in a long line of very painful dress memories, so. Yeah, I um, have to agree with you there. Um, in any event, I do look forward to reading that Jets book and the Carmine Peace book once it comes out, and we'll more than likely be pulling the trigger on some of the other books that um, that you've put out previously. Cool, thank you. Yeah, and I, and, and I was gonna, and also like I said before, I, I've done an also earlier books. I've done a book about Shannon Hoon and Blind Melon called A Devil on One Shoulder. I did a book about Tommy Bolin, the guitarist from the James Gang of Deep Purple, called Touched by Magic, and also. A book called Grunge is Dead, which I interviewed all those great grunge bands. And a lot of the books you could check out on Lulu.com. That has uh, ordering info, and you also you could check out sample chapters prior to purchasing. You can go to uh, stores.lulu.com slash Greg Prado. That, that has a listing of all my books. Or you can just go to lulu.com, which is L-U-L-U.com, and do a search for my name, Greg Prado, P-R-A-T-O. Or you just do a search for any of my books, like the uh, Eric Carr story, MTV Ruled the World, Shannon Hoon. Tommy Ballin, Grunge is Dead, and you'll be able to find all the books that way, too. Is this the place that I want to be? Is it you I want to see? mentioned writing a book about them and I uh, just wanted to throw that in there a very cool track that I've always enjoyed by the band and I uh, want to thank Greg for coming aboard and hopefully we'll have him again in the future pull the trigger on uh, Grunge is Dead and uh, When MTV Rule the World right after the interview so I'm sure once I'm done with those I'll check out some of the other books that he has 
uh, put out and definitely look forward to uh, reading the Carmine of Peace book and that Jets book. Um, also want to mention, I'm currently reading um, Everybody Wants Some, the Van Halen saga by Ian Christie. And um, he brings up the entire thing about Peter Angelos and uh, David Lee Roth putting the movie together. The movie was actually bought or picked up by CBS Studios. But apparently what they say in the book is that uh, CBS had a change in its president and the entire uh, company was reshuffled and um, unfortunately... Uh, the movie was pretty much thrown out the window and was never picked up by anyone else. So, um, um, a very big shame because that would have been a great movie. You know, loved those Dave Lee Roth videos. And uh, I, my friends and I and family members and on and on would do the lines to all those videos over and over again. So, do yourself a favor, go out to YouTube and look for the extended version of David Lee Roth's Going Crazy. Just absolutely great, great video. Uh, just want to remind you guys that uh, you can listen to these episodes in their entirety directly from MarsAttacksRadio.com. You can download them from there as well. You can also subscribe to the podcast uh, right there in iTunes. Just look up Mars Attacks Podcast. You can also subscribe to both of my other podcast fusion sonica which is a spanish language hard rock and metal podcast and there's also the victor m ruiz podcast which pertains to a lot of different things movies uh, tv shows music outside of hard rock and metal uh, and also uh, plenty of wrestling talk on there as well which i'm a big fan of go to victormruiz.com or just look it up in iTunes and you can do the same. Subscribe or listen to or download directly from that aforementioned page. Uh, remember that we have the Twitter, Facebook, and MySpace going as well. Uh, you can look that up right on MarsAttacksRadio.com on the right-hand side there of the homepage. We also have the radio show that airs Thursdays, Fridays, and throughout the weekend on Stream A of MarkStriegelRadio.com. You can also listen to that station directly off of MarsAttacksRadio.com. Want to thank Greg once again for checking in with us. Also want to thank you guys for listening to this podcast. Hopefully you enjoyed it. Hopefully you go out and check Greg's books out. And uh, that's pretty much it for this episode we're going to leave you with one last track that features Eric Carr. This song could have made it on a Kiss album. You can tell by the way it sounds. Um, unfortunately, it never did. It is on his Rockology album. It is called Eyes of Love. See you next time right here on Mars Attacks. 